0: Greetings friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. It's my privilege to host this podcast and to welcome you to listening to this week's episode. Thanks also to Media Gratii who are the sponsors and producers of this podcast and you can find out more about this and their other material at mediagratii.org. Uh, especially uh, on the slash podcasts page or you can follow us on X at reading Spurgeon for daily quotes and other bits and pieces. We do hope that the podcast is a blessing to you uh, and will be today. If you'd like to share that blessing with others then please do leave a review on your favorite podcast app, especially if you're living outside the United States. I am informed that that makes a genuine difference and we do appreciate those contributions. So this week we're reading from Sermon 1074 through to 1080, and our featured sermon is the first of this week's sermons, the Paraclete, Sermon 1074. It was preached from John 14, verse 16. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Spurgeon preached it on the Lord's Day morning of the 6th of October 1872 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. It shows Spurgeon as a true theologian of the Holy Spirit, perhaps not always in all of the ways that people like to claim him. Uh, For some, it may be uh, going too far. For others, not far enough. Spurgeon's one of those men, I think, that everybody likes to quote and likes to claim isolate a few sentences here and there from his huge output and you can probably find him saying that something that sounds enough like what you'd like him to say to claim that he's fully on your side and there's value then in reading a sermon like this not only for the wonderfully rich and positive statement of uh, the the spirit of god Uh, his person and his work that Spurgeon gives to us, but also to to see more in context, in depth, uh, in proportion, what Spurgeon says about the Spirit's ministry. He begins by telling us simply that the unspeakable gift of the Son of God was followed up by the equally priceless gift of the Holy Ghost. Must it not be confessed by us that we think far less of the Holy Spirit than we should? I am sure we do not exalt the Saviour too much, nor is he too often the subject of our meditations. But at the same time, we give to the Holy Spirit a very disproportionate place, even as compared with the Redeemer. I fear that we even grieve the Spirit by our neglect of Him. Here's Spurgeon, then, the, the, the positive pneumatology. Pneumatology is the, the doctrine or study of the of the Spirit of God. I fear that we even grieve the Spirit by our neglect of him. I've said in a number of places that I think that Spurgeon would be even more correct in saying that today amongst many Reformed evangelicals because we've become so fearful of the excesses that we see in the teaching of the the Spirit's person and work that we have become experts in all that the Holy Spirit isn't and everything that he doesn't do. Now Spurgeon does not intend to make that mistake. He does make an interesting point though in his introduction talking about the third person of the blessed trinity that the word ghost was the same as spirit in years gone by when the present translation of the bible was made but it does not popularly signify spirit now superstition has degraded the word from its elevated meaning and it might be as well perhaps if the word were dropped altogether and we confined ourselves to the more accurate word holy spirit that says Spurgeon is this person's personal title and we have in this verse his official title the comforter or in the original the paraclete that's how we English it Now says Spurgeon, it's true that the name comforter is a fair translation from some points of view but it rather translates a corner of the word than the whole of it. It is a light which really streams from the text but it is one of the seven prismatic colours rather than the combined light of the very instructive and wonderful word paraclete. So Spurgeon's saying let's get our nomenclature right. Let's use the right words and let's use them in the right sense. He's preferring Holy Spirit, although it must be said that in a number of places across his output, he he talks very readily of the Holy Ghost, uh, so he's he's not against that phrase. And then uh, this name, the paraclete, and he wants us to understand this word, and that's really his first main point. He doesn't do what he often does, uh, and give us the outline of the whole sermon. He's building this one, developing it point by point, which is helpful. Uh, but he wants, first of all, then to explain how the Spirit of God is the paraclete. And and just notice that without uh, yet having uh, given us a definition of this word, indeed, uh, that's part of the point of what he's going to do in his first uh, heading, he's introducing this language to us in a way that takes account of the fact that many of his congregation might not know the word and that uh, he he wants to explain it. So he's introducing it, he's giving us a sense, he's uh, teaching us effectively here, coming down to our level without making us feel stupid. It's an important technique and skill uh, in pastoral ministry. So He begins here this first main heading that the word paraclete is so full that it's extremely difficult to convey to you all its meaning, like one of those Hebrew words which contains so much in a small compass. Sternly and even primitively sublime in its simplicity, yet it comprehends great things. Literally, it signifies called to or called beside another to aid him. He talks about it in relation to the Latin word advocatus or advocate and he says again uh, we've come to use that word in a slightly different sense so we need to be careful with it but he wants the meaning of the word paraclete to be thought of under two headings, one called to, that is, to come to our aid, to help our infirmities, to suggest, to advocate, to guide and so on and one who in consequence thereof for our benefit calls to us. For some see in it the idea of monitor, and certainly the blessed paraclete is our teacher, remembrancer, incentive and comforter. His work as one called in to help us consists very largely in his strengthening us by admonition, by instruction, by encouragement and by those works which would come under the head of a teacher or a comforter. And he says it's a a too extensive a word in meaning to be exchanged for any one word in any language. That's very important for us because I've heard people uh, criticize preachers and preaching uh, on the basis of a a very shallow or narrow understanding of this word, for example. So... uh, if, if you take something of the richness of the, the word that Spurgeon is going to explore, somebody might say, no, no, the Holy Spirit is a comforter. Uh, that's all he does. He's just nice. He's just kind. He just helps us out. He just lifts us up. The idea that he, in any sense, is calling us on, helping us move forward, standing alongside us and stirring and spurring us, that is, uh, in some people's eyes, just not at all appropriate. Spurgeon's wonderful here. He's making very clear there's a a breadth in this this name, in this title, uh, that we must take full account of. What he wants to do then in order to get a sense of this language is to study the passages in which it occurs. So although his text is John 14, 16, he's going to draw together from John 14, 15 and 16, uh, those three chapters, these various things concerning the Holy Spirit. So from the first text, which is ours, he says, we learn that the Holy Spirit as the paraclete is to be to us all that Jesus was to his disciples. I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter. So Christ is the first paraclete, the Holy Spirit is the second occupying Christ's position. It would not be easy to describe all that Jesus was to his disciples when he dwelt among them, says Spurgeon. If we called him their guide and counsellor and friend, we should have but have begun to catalogue his kindnesses. What a valiant leader is to an army when his very presence inspires them with valour, when his wisdom and tact conduct them to certain victory, and when his influence over them nerves and strengthens them in the day of battle, all that and more was Jesus Christ to his disciples. What the shepherd is to the sheep, the sheep being foolish and the shepherd alone wise, the sheep being defenceless and the shepherd strong to protect them, the sheep being without power to provide for themselves in any degree and the shepherd able to give them all they require, all that was Jesus Christ to his people. And that, says Spurgeon, is what the Spirit of God is now to the church, another paraclete to abide with us forever. If there be this day any power in the church of God, it is because the Holy Spirit is in the midst of her. If she be able to work any spiritual miracles, it is through the might of his indwelling. If there be any light in her instruction, if there be any life in her ministry, if there be any glory gotten to God, if there be any good wrought among the sons of men, it is entirely because the Holy Spirit is still with her. The entire weight of influence of the church as a whole and every Christian in particular, comes from the abiding presence of the sacred paraclete. Our Lord's disciples told him their troubles, says Spurgeon. We must trust the Comforter with ours. Whenever they felt that they were baffled by the adversary, they fell back upon their leader's power. So must we call in the aid of the Holy Spirit. When they needed guidance, they sought direction from Jesus. We also must seek and abide by the Spirit's leadings. When? Knowing what to do, they felt themselves weak for the accomplishment of it. They waited upon their master for strength, and so must we upon the Spirit of all grace. Treat the Holy Spirit with the love and tender respect which are due to the Saviour, and the Spirit of God will deal with you as the Son of God did with his disciples. So that's from John 14, verse 16. Now the next text is the 26th verse of the same chapter the Comforter, who is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things. So the Spirit of God then exercises his office as paraclete and comforts us. And remember those senses of being called to and calling to, uh, to take account of that comfort language. What comfort is there in the world equal to the words of Jesus when they are really understood, asks Spurgeon. And he says, that's what the Spirit does. Is not Jesus Christ himself the consolation of Israel? And therefore everything that is of him is full of consolation to Israel. And the Spirit whom the Father will send in the Son's name shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatever I have said unto you. So if the Spirit of God makes us understand the doctrines of Christ, as, for instance, his teaching concerning the pardon of sin by faith and the love of God towards the contrite, his teaching in his own person of the need of a substitute and of the provision of a substitute, if those things be really taught to our souls, the paraclete becomes indeed a true comforter to us. Now the verse which follows teaches us that through the Holy Spirit we obtain peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I to you. So the Spirit of God reveals God to us as the everlasting God, who loved us before the world was, as the unchanging God who never can turn away his heart from you, and can do and can you do otherwise? asks Spurgeon, than rejoice with exceeding great joy. He goes on to say there's there's more here. This is where he goes back to that language of advocate uh, we have a, a paraclete with the father a comforter here the Spirit of God exercises for us the office of an advocate but he is not an advocate or intercessor in heaven our Lord Jesus Christ fills that office the Holy Spirit does not intercede for the saints but he makes intercession in the Saints according to the will of God God the Son makes intercession for the saints God the Holy Spirit makes intercession in the saints. With regard then to this making intercession in the saints, Spurgeon wants to give us an example from the the 15th chapter here. We find the Saviour describing his saints in the world as hated and persecuted. He bids us to expect this, but consoles us in the 26th and 27th verses. When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Spurgeon means that when Christ was here upon earth, he was the one who stepped forward and confronted the foes of the disciples on their behalf. His point is that the Holy Spirit is still able to enable us to speak uh, to speak in such a way is to to put down those who attack us that if we relied upon him as we relied upon Christ when he was here upon earth then we would soon make more progress so nearly all the books that have been written to answer modern philosophies are waste time and waste paper the only way in which the church can hold her own and answer her calumniators those who speak evil of her is by real power from god If there be not a miraculous spiritual power in the church of God at this day, says Spurgeon, she's an imposter. At this moment, the only vindication of our existence is the presence and work of the paraclete among us. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, ah, so the charismatics can claim Spurgeon. He is uh, a, a Pentecostal with a capital P in the way in which that word is often used. Uh, And I would claim that it's uh, uh, misused so often in that sense. Uh, I think uh, if you're a true reformed evangelical Christian, even of the most conservative stripe, you're a genuine Pentecostal uh, according to the true meaning of the word. But I will come back to this. Spurgeon's point is not that there's miraculous spiritual power in the sense of these great uh, healings or, or, or other claims that are made but it's more to do with the the power of the gospel. Jesus Christ was preached by us, he says, referring to himself, in simpler language than men had been accustomed to hear, and every one of our sermons was full of the old-fashioned gospel. Many other pulpits were intellectual, but we were puritanical. Rhetorical essays were the wares retailed by most of the preachers, but we gave the people the gospel. We brought out before the world the old reformers' doctrines, Calvinistic truth... Augustinian teaching and Pauline dogma. We were not ashamed to be the echo of an old exploded evangelism, as some wiseacre called us. We preached Christ and him crucified, and by the space of these 20 years have we ever lacked a congregation? When has not this vast hall been thronged? Have we ever lacked conversions? Has a Sabbath passed over us without them? Has not the history of this church, from its littleness in Park Street until now, been a march of triumph with the hearts and souls of men as the spoil of war, of which the standard has been Christ crucified? And it is so everywhere, says Spurgeon. Only let men come back to the gospel and preach it ardently, not with comeliness of words and affectation of polished speech, but as a burning heart compels them and as the Spirit of God teaches them to speak it then will great signs and wonders be seen. We must have signs following. We cannot answer the world else. Let them sneer, let them rave, let them curse, let them lie. God will answer them. It is ours in the power of the Spirit of God to keep on preaching Christ and glorifying the Saviour. And the signs following here are wonderful conversions. He goes on, he says, It's not just a testimony to the outside world. The Spirit of God is an advocate with us or within us, leading us into comfort. Beloved, says the preacher, if the Holy Spirit be an advocate within thee, speaking peace within thee by Jesus Christ, I will tell thee how he will plead with thee. This, this is wonderful. Just listen to this. This is Spurgeon at his pastoral best. This is what he's saying. The Holy Spirit will, will speak in the soul of God's people. First, he will convince thee of sin. He will show thee to be altogether lost and ruined and undone, for till thy self-righteousness be swept out of thee, there will be no solid consolation. He will convince thee of the master sin of having been an unbeliever in Christ, and he will lay thee low at the foot of the cross as well as at the foot of Sinai, to make thee feel that thou art a sinner against love as well as law, a rebel against the five wounds of Jesus as well as against the ten commands of God. And when he has done this, he will convince thee of righteousness, John 16.10. That is to say, he will show thee that the righteousness of Christ renders thee perfectly acceptable with God. He will show thee, in fact, that Jesus is made of God unto thee righteousness. Then the Spirit of God will comfort thee again by bringing home to thee a sense of judgment. He will show thee that thou and thy sins were both judged and condemned on Calvary. He will show thee that the evil which now seeks to get the mastery over thee was there and then judged and condemned to die, so that thou art fighting with a convicted adversary who only lingers for a little while and then shall be entirely dead, even as he now is crucified with Christ. When the Spirit of God has brought these three things home to thee, what an advocate he will be with thee! He will say, Heart, Canst thou now despair? What wilt thou despair about? Thy sin was laid on Jesus. What dost thou fear? O heart, dost thou lament thy lack of righteousness? Thou hast it all in Jesus. Wherefore dost thou tremble? Dost thou fear the coming judgment? Thou hast been judged and condemned in Christ. Therefore the sin that is in thee shall die, and thine inner life shall live eternally. It's wonderful, isn't it? The way Spurgeon envisions, almost uh, hears in his own head and and speaks out to us. The way the Holy Spirit reasons within us, uh, showing us these wonderful truths, advocating in our own hearts. But he's moving on. Once again, the Holy Spirit is a paraclete, according to the 16th chapter at the 13th verse, by his guiding us into all truth, which is, I think, more than was meant by uh, his teaching us all truth. This leading or guiding into the very depths, convincing us that such and such a thing is truth uh, and very much granting us experimentally to know it and taste it and feel it so that we're, we're led into the innermost depths of a thing. It's a blessed thing when the Spirit of God guides us into all truth. A great many Christians never get into the truth They sit on the outside of it, but do not enter in. It's like a great nut to them. They polish the shell and prize it. But if they could once pierce the kernel and taste the interior flavor of the nut, how greatly would they be comforted? If the doctrines I preach to you be not true, says our man, I am a lost creature. My life becomes an agonizing disappointment and my death a horrible calamity. I know the gospel is true because I have tried and proved its power. I know its inside as well as its outside. I do not merely believe its creed, but its truth is to me real and practical. This is is a point that Spurgeon has made elsewhere and that others have made in in similar fashion, that we cannot glow with borrowed light and we cannot try and radiate borrowed heat. Uh, you, you could speak like Spurgeon. You could uh, speak with something of his eloquence. You could use his rhythms. You could use his vocabulary. But you see, this man knows what he's preaching. He has entered into its depths. It's not a mere rehearsal of true things. It's truth known and felt. The experienced believer then, says Spurgeon, is invulnerable from head to foot against anything and everything that can be hurled against him by scepticism. We're as sure of the truth of the gospel as we are of our own existence. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ has led us into, or guided us into, all truth. And then, once more, this fifth reference, 16th chapter and 14th verse of John, we are told that the paraclete glorifies Christ, by taking of the things of Christ and showing them to us. Could infinite wisdom select a sweeter topic for a disconsolate heart than the things of Christ, asks Spurgeon. Ah, man, when you speak of the things of Christ to a broken heart, you've laid your fingers on the right string. You may bring me the things of Moses and of David, of Solomon and of Daniel, but what are they to me to compare with the things of Christ? Bring me the things of Christ. These are the balm of Gilead. These are the plasters which heal the sore. These are the true medicines of diseased souls. So, five texts, each of them identifying something of the work of the the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the true Comforter, who not only comes to us, uh, but calls to us, who dwells with us, uh, and who stirs us up and urges us on. And now he wants very briefly, because he spent so much time on those that first five elements in his first point, he wants to remark upon the nature of the Holy Spirit's comfort very briefly. And here again is his uh, preaching excellence and adaptability, that having given himself and expanded that first point, he can now boil down and summarise his next two points. So the nature of the Holy Spirit's comfort. It is evident from the passages we've read to you this morning. Listen again how he's grounding this in the sense of the scriptures that the Spirit of God never dissociates his comfort from character. If you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter. The Spirit of God never comforts a man in his sin. Disobedient Christians must not expect consolation. The Holy Spirit sanctifies and then consoles. Next, the Spirit of God does not aim at working mere comfort by itself and alone, but he produces peace in the heart as the result of other divinely useful processes. So he doesn't comfort us as a a fond mother may please her wayward child, and fond here means perhaps indulgent, by yielding to its foolish wishes. The mother does not teach the child anything, nor does she cleanse its body or purify its heart in order to comfort it. Perhaps she even neglects these to please the little one. But the Holy Spirit never acts so unwisely. He blesses by purity and then by peace. So you don't expect uh, some uh, sudden grant of peace or comfort uh, out of nowhere, as it were, but by the proper means. The Spirit of God comforts us by taking away our ignorance and giving us knowledge, by removing our apprehension, misapprehensions and giving us clear understanding, and by taking away our insensibility and convincing us of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. Do not expect to get comfort merely by running to sweet texts or listening to pleasing preachers who give you nothing but cups of sugared doctrine, But expect to find comfort through the holy, reproving, humbling, strengthening, sanctifying processes which are the operation of the divine paraclete. And there's good counsel there for parents uh, as well as for uh, Christians seeking comfort from the Holy Spirit. Note next, the comfort of the Holy Spirit is not a comfort founded upon concealment. For some obtain consolation by conveniently forgetting troublesome truth. But the Holy Spirit lays the whole truth open before us, bringing all truth to our recollection, hiding nothing from us. So we get the consolation, not of fools, but of the wise. Peace, not for blind bats, but for bright-eyed eagles. And then, that the comforts that the Holy Spirit brings are always in connection with Jesus. O Beloved, do not run for consolation to mere prophecies of the future or soft reflections about the past. Hard by the cross, near to the cross, is the deep well of consolation undefiled from which the Eternal Spirit draws full buckets for His thirsty people. Then, this comfort is always available. The comforts of the Holy Spirit do not depend upon health, strength, wealth, position or friendship but he comforts us through the truth and the truth does not change. So the nature of the Holy Spirit's comfort, uh, Spurgeon wants to really emphasise this, it comes by the truth of God. It doesn't come by pretending that things are other than they are. It doesn't come by hiding certain truths. It doesn't come by uh, consoling us while we're still in our sins. It's not an indulgent affection that overlooks the, the proper means of bringing us to the right place. No, it's a comfort which always available always in connection with Jesus, holds up the person and work of the Son of God before our eyes so that by the Spirit's ministry in our souls, we obtain the consolations and the encouragements which we need. And now, finally, some observations upon the whole subject. I'm just going to read the first one, one to the believer and one to the unconverted. Listen to what he says to the believer. Dear brother, honour the Spirit of God as you would honour Jesus Christ if he were present. If Jesus Christ were dwelling in your house, you would not ignore him. You would not go about your business as if you were not there. Do not ignore the presence of the Holy Ghost in your soul. I beseech you, do not live as if you had not heard whether there were any Holy Spirit. To him pay your constant adorations reverence the august guest who has been pleased to make your body his sacred abode love him obey him worship him take care never to impute the vain imaginings of your fancy to him i have seen the spirit of god shamefully dishonored by persons i hope they were insane who have said that they have had this and that revealed to them there has not for some years passed over my head a single week in which I have not been pestered with the revelations of hypocrites or maniacs. Semi-lunatics are very fond of coming with messages from the Lord to me, and it may spare them some trouble if I tell them once for all that I will have none of their stupid messages. When my Lord and Master has any message to me, he knows where I am, and he will send it to me direct and not by madcaps. Never dream that events are revealed to you by heaven, or you may come to be like those idiots who dare impute their blatant follies to the Holy Ghost. If you feel your tongue itch to talk nonsense, trace it to the devil, not to the Spirit of God. Whatever is to be revealed by the Spirit to any of us is in the Word of God already. He adds nothing to the Bible and never will. Let persons who have revelations of this, that and the other go to bed and wake up in their senses. I only wish they would follow the advice and no longer insult the Holy Ghost by laying their nonsense at his door. At the same time, since the Holy Spirit is with you, beloved, in all your learning, ask him to teach you. In all your suffering, ask him to sustain you. In all your teaching, ask him to give you the right words. In all your witness-bearing, ask him to give you constant wisdom. And in all service, depend upon him for his help believingly reckon upon the Holy Spirit. We do not continually take him into our calculations as we should. We reckon up so many missionaries, so much money and so many schools and so conclude the list of our forces. The Holy Spirit is our great need, not learning or culture. Little knowledge or great knowledge shall answer almost as well if the Spirit of God be there, but all your knowledge shall be worthless without him. Let but the Spirit of God come, and all shall be right. I would we took the power of the Spirit into our calculations always. You have a class at school, and you do not feel fit to teach it. Ask Him to help you, and you do not know how well you will teach. You are called to preach, but you feel you cannot. You are dull, and your talk will be flat, stale, unprofitable. Bring the Holy Spirit into it, and if he fire you, you shall find even the slender materials you have collected will set the people on a blaze. We ought to reckon upon the Spirit. He is our main force. What if we say, he is our soul force? And we grieve him exceedingly when we do not reckon upon him. Love the Spirit, worship the Spirit, trust the Spirit, obey the Spirit, and as a church cry mightily to the Spirit. Beseech him to let his mighty power be known and felt among you. The Lord fire your hearts with this sacred flame, for as this made Pentecost stand out from all other days, may it make the close of this year stand out in our history from all other years. Come, Holy Spirit now, thou art with us, but come with power and let us feel thy sacred might. I would suggest that that's real Pentecostalism. Spurgeon is absolutely cutting with regard to some of the wild excesses of his day and ours. But he is absolutely emphatic with regard to our utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit for every blessing we have, for the strength we need. He and he only is the one who brings Christ to us and stirs our souls in this way. And so Spurgeon closes with a few words to the unconverted, that if you're ever to be saved, the Holy Spirit is essential to you. Except you're born again from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God, much less enter into it. Without the Holy Ghost you are dead. You will never come to any life unless he quickens you, and even the Saviour himself upon the cross will never be a Saviour to you till the Holy Spirit come and give you eyes with which to look upon him and a heart with which to receive him. "'Remember that. Therefore I charge thee, take care that thou honour that spirit, "'and say never a word against him, lest thou be found guilty of that sin against the Holy Ghost, "'which shall never be forgiven, neither in this world, nor in that which is to come.'" As evangelistic charges go, that's probably one of the more unusual. "'Let me ask you,' says Spurgeon, "'has he ever convinced you of your sin in not believing in Jesus?' Has he convinced you that there's no righteousness but in Christ? Has he convinced you that God will judge you and all the rest of mankind according to our gospel by Christ Jesus? If so, since he has done thus much for you, beseech him now to take of the things of Christ and show them to you. There is hope for you there. See how he's now uh, taking those very truths that he's spoken primarily to God's people and he's saying, this is what you need. It's, it's a wonderful uh, application of the truth to the unconverted. All the salvation of a sinner lies in Jesus. And when the Spirit of God brings Jesus to the heart, he brings salvation. Oh, poor heart, you will never get out of Doubting Castle, never cease to be a captive till the Spirit bring the things of Jesus to you. And I pray that he may, and that he may do so at once. Here then is Spurgeon, the the true theologian of the Holy Spirit. He delights in him. He walks closely with him. He depends upon him. And What he's done here is then to explain the the title of the Holy Ghost as paraclete and then looked at what that comfort truly means and what that comfort means then to us. It's a a sermon that is uh, both then an antidote to uh, the unscriptural notions of the person work of the Holy Spirit that 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 make him, uh, in effect, some kind of uh, divine firework display for the 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 entertainment of men, and on the other hand, uh, to turning him into uh, some kind of uh, gloomy shade in the corner, diminishing him in the eyes and hearts of his people. This is the Holy Spirit as he truly is at least in some small measure. And I hope that by looking at this sermon together, your heart has been stirred, your soul has been encouraged to call upon God and to ask that we may have more of the Spirit who has been given to the church. I trust it has been a blessing to you and I trust that you'll join us again next time when we're hoping to look at Sermon 1086, Jesus, the King of Truth. That's the uh, title of next week's featured sermon, reading from 1,081 to 1,087, and that one is Sermon 1,086. So do join us then, and I trust it will be, again, a blessing to you under the smile of the Spirit of God.